It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. A beautiful day for a neighbor. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. A beautiful day for a neighbor. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. A beautiful day. Please won't you be my neighbor? So cool. Uh, thanks for taking your picture. If you haven't had a circle of friends, uh, take a picture by our blue door in the narthex. Make sure you get that done. Well, you know, um, Mr. Rogers was on the Oprah Winfrey show one time, uh, and it didn't go so well. His handlers made it really clear to Oprah uh, that there should be no children on the set, no children in the whole studio. They, they were very, very clear about this. But of course, that's absurd, right? Mr. Rogers is his hero of children. And so Oprah filled the audience with parents and children. The concern wasn't that the children would get out of hand. The concern was that Fred Rogers would get out of hand, uh, that he would somehow be distracted by the children, which is exactly what happened. As soon as he saw through the spotlights and started making out the faces of these children, they lost him. Uh, one child he invited to come right sit in his lap, and another child he knelt down beside them because he was afraid of the train that was on the set. Another he was whispering in their ear in really slow, quiet tones, which were horrible for adult television. And so Oprah is pacing up and down the aisle trying to figure out what do I do with the show, what do I do? And the producers are throwing up their hands in outrage. He's just ruined everything. Now, um, the reason for that is children were his neighborhood, right? And, and as soon as he saw, because after a lifetime of pursuing children with love, as soon as he saw that, it kind of triggered him, and he, was just, he got distracted, and he was right there with these children. A, a, a lifetime of caring for children had changed Fred Rogers' life. And the truth is that the gospel tells us something similar has happened to our God, you know, that after millennia, uh, after a lifetime of caring for people, God, in the fullness of time, moved into the neighborhood and become, became one of us, to live with us, to walk among us, to care for us. God moved into the neighborhood, the human neighborhood, because people matter to God. Today, we're in a series, it's kind of a vision series for us. It's called Next Door. It's about the direction that God is calling us as a church. Super important. We're moving the center of gravity from this church campus into the neighborhoods of Seattle to join Jesus in his mission to reconcile all people. And we're learning that we don't do that alone. We do that in circles. We're going next door with a circle of friends. In week one, we learned that we cannot say to each other, I have no need of you. If, if, if I were to go into my neighborhood by myself, what my neighbors would see is George. How boring is that? But if I go with some of you, what my neighbors see is the thing that St. Paul's calls the body of Christ. They see Jesus. Week two, we learn that the, Jesus is the center of the circle, that we're not a circle of peers. Jesus is the king. We make way before him. And that what we do when we gather together is we call to each other's attention the presence of Jesus. We say, Jesus is here. Jesus is here. And we remind each other of that. Today, we're going to look at what happens outside the circle. We're going to explore the idea that these circles don't exist just for themselves, but they exist for those outside uh, the circle. The, the one who is at the center, Jesus, opens up the circle. 
and he somehow inspires his followers to chase after those who are beyond. Remember, I told you last week, this is what we've been doing here at UPC forever. And this is, 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 the statuary is a constant reminder to us that Jesus sends us out into our neighborhoods in circles. And that opening at the, at the front of the table is there to remind us that there's a place for you at the table. And there's a place for your neighbor at, at the table. And so this is what we're exploring today. Jesus tells a story about chasing in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. So would you just take a moment, grab the black book and the rack in front of you and turn to page 850. If you brought your own Bible, that's awesome. Uh, turn to Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. And if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's honor Jesus by reading his word aloud together. You know what? If you brought a different translation, don't be shy. Sometimes people ask, can I read my translation? Absolutely. Uh, we can handle it. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, which one of you having a hundred sheep and losing one of them does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. When he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. So I just, I mean, immediately, you have the ability to bring joy to heaven today. Don't you love that thought? Now, yes, I do too. Thank you for that. I want to explore this story with you a little bit today, the story about chasing this one lost sheep. The whole story hangs on two questions. One I would call the insider question and the other the outsider question. The, what's the insider question? Well, this is the question that... Jesus seems to understand the Pharisees and the scribes are asking when they watch Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners. There's an implicit question. I call it the insider question, and it's this. What are you doing with these people? What are you doing with these people? It comes from an experience of outrage. By the way, we in the 21st century in America are very familiar with outrage. It seems to characterize our corporate conversation more than anything else. And it's a question that comes up a lot around Jesus. Because to the people of Jesus' day, Jesus seems like a remarkably good man, upstanding character, cares about justice, pursues peace, teaches truth in a compelling way. He just has this one flaw. And that is he's constantly distracted by what the gospel calls sinners, people with a pagan heart. He wants to break bread with them, and this outrages the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes. And in verse 2, we read that they were grumbling and saying, this fellow, this guy, welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, this makes him the most disappointing kind of figure to them. They had hoped that he would be an ally to them, and he keeps 
breaking out of their circle, opening it up, pursuing people who are not with the program. In the same way that Fred Rogers was distracted by children, this Jesus seems to be constantly distracted by sinners, ruining the program. And, and like the producers, the scribes and the Pharisees throw up their hands in a spirit of outrage. They grumble, they murmur, and soon they will start plotting to kill. Now, uh, this is not just a religious thing. This is a human thing. A few years ago, Yale University did a, a study that they published in the journal Nature on moral outreach. And their research shows that moral outrage actually pays off. The research found, quote, people who invest time and effort in condemning those who behave badly are trusted more. This is about signaling you're a good guy and about enhancing your own reputation. That's why we, we, we so often love outrage in our media feed, because it, it telegraphs to people that I'm on your side. I'm one of the good guys. I'm an insider. But Jesus is different. Jesus is different. I want to take a few minutes this morning and, and show you a video clip. We don't usually do this, but this is a video clip that's moved me over the years. It's been out for a while. It's produced for the History Channel's um, series on the miniseries on the Bible. And, you know, it, 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 it does two things. It takes two parts of the Gospel loop and combines them together. This, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, real short little parable, and also the calling of Matthew, whose uh, Hebrew name is Levi, puts them together in a way that I think is interesting. Now, the production values are low. It's old. They cast Jesus as a white guy, which I hate. Um, but if you could just set all of that aside for a moment and imagine yourself in the scene, imagine yourself hearing the outrage and, and, and the shame and watching Jesus step into the shame, actually uh, move from, from being an insider to becoming an outsider and reaching out his hand to you. You're a tax collector or a sinner. And what does it feel like to have Jesus reach out his hand to you and choose you and pull you in? Let's watch this clip. All taxes must be paid in full! We're all Jews. How can they live with themselves? Our own people working for Rome. These people make me sick. Collaborators, let's move on. A stinking vermin. You should keep your distance from them. Two men went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other one. tax collector. The Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, thieves, adulterers, or this tax collector. 
tax collector. Didn't even look up to heaven. He said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. God bless the tax collector, not the Pharisee. Anyone who praises himself will be humbled. And anyone who humbles himself will be praised. Matthew, come. follow him. One has to wonder of the sins committed by his other followers. So did you hear that? He says, God blessed the tax collector and not the Pharisee. That's the outrage. That's what we call the scandal of the good news. This is the question that they're asking of Jesus in this scene as he eats with tax collectors and sinners. What are you doing with these people? These are not good people. These are not believing people. These are not church people. These are people with pagan hearts. What are you doing with these people? And it's that question that provokes Jesus to ask his own, more challenging question of us. He asks the outsider question. And it's this, how much do these people matter to you? It comes not from an experience of outrage. It comes from an experience of love, something that we need now more than ever. And we read it in verse 4. Which one of you, Jesus says, which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? He's putting the question to his readers. He's putting the questions to his interrogators, the scribes and the Pharisees. Which one of you wouldn't leave the 99 in the care of a friend or so, and go find that one to give your life, if giving your life would allow you to find that one and bring it back into a place of home? He then seamlessly transitions that question into a story. We're asked to imagine a shepherd bedding down his flock for the night, perhaps patting each on the head as they come into a shadowed gully, counting them as they pass. 97, 98, 99, 99. And then the stunning realization that one is lost. He says, what would you do? What would you do? In other words, does that one matter? Does that one matter to you? What would the shepherd do? And of course, the answer is he will chase. He will pursue. This is the, this is the question that Jesus is, this is Jesus' answer to the question, the, the, the insider question. What are you doing with these peoples? His answer is, I'm chasing. And the Pharisees don't get it. In, in order to, 
to, to get it, you have to know that you're lost. You have to know what it means to be found, and they don't want to see themselves that way. But who gets it is Matthew. The, the one that we saw called there is actually at this uh, scene. He's sitting with Jesus and James and John and Peter at the table with the tax collectors and the sinners. He's not mentioned immediately here, but we know he's there. And, and this chasing for Matthew has become a mission strategy. For him, it became it, it, the intuitive reflex to the call of Jesus in his life, right after that. In fact, if you want to see, look, look back to, at Luke chapter 5 and verse 27, halfway through the chapter there. We read this. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And he got up, left everything, and followed him. And the very next verse, 29, what does Levi do? <clears throat> then Levi gave a great banquet for him in his house. Don't miss this. As soon as he gets up from that table, he starts circling with the disciples, Peter, James, and John. And, he's, and apparently, you know, the tax collector, not surprisingly, he's got a big house. He says, hey, wait a minute, I got an idea. Don't go anywhere. Don't go anywhere. Uh, we'll have a party tonight for Jesus. And he goes out and he, he, he goes, oh, his whole tax collector net, network, wherever they are, he activates it. He says, come on, we're all coming. Coming, we're going to gather with Jesus. And they do. They circle with Jesus. Now he opens the circle up and all these tax collectors come flooding into his house. They pack out his house. And you can just imagine him raising a cup and saying, I have found a man who blesses tax collectors. I have found a love that finds those who are lost. I have found a God who's not afraid of pagan heart, but who heals it and transforms it, and his name is Jesus. See, when friends circle around Jesus, the circle will join the chase for those outside. Matthew gets it immediately. But why? Why will this happen? Well, the answer is joy. The same thing in the shepherd's heart when he lifts that lost lamb onto his shoulders to celebrate it. The same thing that drives him a nuisance in his neighborhood when he goes back and calls all his neighbors and he won't stop talking about his great day. You know, it's like, oh my gosh. And he's really telling the story of the gospel to his neighbors. Why? Because of the joy in his heart. And I always say, nothing will change your life more than seeing God change someone else's life. And those of us who are so full of God's love that we start moving out to pursue others in love will experience more love. That's just the mystery of Jesus. I got a letter about that joy from one of you a little while ago. He said, George, I want you to know what happened in our small group. I'll call it, I changed the names. Oliver and Ben were in a small group. They were circling around Jesus like many of us do here at UPC. As they got to know Jesus better, they, just like Matthew, wanted to open the circle up and invite others. They talked about that. One um, person that Oliver had met was a man named Max. Met him through some mutual friends, and, and they got to know each other. Max and Oliver shared their stories with one another, and um, Max... By the way, I've said this to you before. When you, when you share your story with someone, you hear someone share their story, and then they say, well, tell me your story, you can say this, hey, Max, when I share my story, do you mind if I include a little bit of God talk? Because it's really hard to tell my story without the God part. And, and Max had allowed Oliver to do that, and Max had received an invitation to join this small group or at least visit from, 
from Oliver, and he did. And there was joy that day that Max showed up in the, in the circle, but the real joy didn't come until it actually got awkward in the circle. And that was one night, some weeks later, when Max broke the silence and he said, hey, I just can't take it anymore. You guys, you don't know the real me. You don't know my past. And frankly, you don't know my present. You don't know who I am. And he began to share. And out of Max poured a story of failure, wounds, and shame. It became clear that Max was a sinner. They all looked awkwardly at one another. So what do we do now? Max said, you probably won't want me in this group anymore. Now, Oliver, who had invited him, was struggling for a response when Ben, his friend, broke in. Max, Ben said, thank you for being real. Now I want to tell you my story. And out came another story of failure, wounds, and shame. Oliver was stunned. He had known Ben for years but never heard this. The vulnerability in that circle was now terrifying, and at the same time, oddly, it was liberating. So much so that when Ben finished, Oliver confessed himself to sin and pain in his own life. It was a confession that he'd never had the courage to share with anyone else. Oliver would later write me, that night changed us. Because what happened that night was they were able to realize how lost they were, these men, that they were a circle of sinners. But even more important and much more important than that was that Jesus was there. Jesus was there. He was present. He was inviting. He was welcoming. He was healing. He was transforming. That night changed us. The chase changed the circle. Not just the one who was chased, but the ones chasing. They experienced joy. It's the joy of heaven. When friends circle around Jesus, the circle will join the chase and will share the joy. This is what our new vision is about. Let me just remind you. We say this. That our, this is our mission statement. We're a family of communities joining Jesus to transform our lives and the lives of our neighbors at the University of Washington in our neighborhoods and all around the world, our mission statement. And we have a strategy. It's got a funny, fancy name. It's called Formational Community. But it's really just a fancy way of saying what it means to be healthy followers of Jesus Christ. Here's our definition for Formational Community. Uh, formational Community is a way of life and occurs when circles of friends live like family on mission for their neighbors being formed as disciples in the process. We have a picture of this, a diagram. You know that you're uh, experiencing formational community when you're a member of a circle that's intentionally living in the heart of these three dynamics. Formation as disciples, mission for neighbors, community like family, formational community. Today, Jesus' story is reminding us of the importance of the mission component. Mission doesn't mean just welcoming people if they choose to sign up for your small group. It doesn't just mean inviting people to your small group. It doesn't just mean serving and helping people outside the small group. It means pursuing people, pursuing the people that Jesus is pursuing with Jesus' love. That's the mission of every follower of Jesus. And it's the story that Jesus is telling. Now, on October 27th, we're going to help one another take an important step towards formational community. We're going to have one service. You'll probably be here for a little over two hours. 
uh, more information on upc.org so you can plan. But the most important thing to do is to pull that 21-day prayer and reflection guide off the web or get the print version at the welcome kiosk. Because the most important way that you can prepare for this is to ask Jesus to help you find, identify what your primary neighborhood is going to be in the coming months. Now, when we say neighborhood, what we mean is people with a natural connection. They live, study, work, or play together. That's what we mean by neighborhood. It might be a physical neighborhood like Ravenna, but it might be the elderly, street youth, educators, or the medical community. Someone just told me yesterday that their small group had said, let's make our neighborhood the parents of our kids at this school, and we'll start building relationships with those parents very intentionally and welcoming them. We all live in multiple neighborhoods, so you're really asking for a sense of call. Your neighborhood is your primary ministry assignment where God is calling you to join Jesus at this point in your life. We're going to begin to connect with one another so we can circle in these neighborhoods starting October 27th. For Fred Rogers, the neighborhood was children. For Matthew, the neighborhood was tax collectors. For Jesus, the neighborhood is sinners. When God captures your heart, you're going to want to chase. You know, I lost a child once, briefly, thankfully. Um, we had this big family reunion in Hawaii. My parents had flown all their kids and grandchildren. We were gathered around a, a grand table having a feast when somebody noticed there was an empty a chair at the table. And so I said, you know, parents, count off your kids. And it was like, one, two, oh, no, it's ours. And there's always that moment where you're like, honey. And then she looks back at you and says, I thought they were with you. And, well, uh, of course, immediately, what did we do? What would you do? This is the question Jesus is asking. Does your child matter to you? Of course. So we, we entrusted all the other grandchildren to grandpa and grandma, and all the adults bolted from the table in every direction, towards the beach, towards the lobby, towards the hotel room. All these, we, and for the next 20 minutes, we scoured that whole campus as far as, as we could. It was absolutely terrifying. Now, we, we found this child's our four-year-old son at the time. And uh, he had got, apparently gotten distracted by the tiki lamps, you know, and the, they blow a conch shell, and he just wandered off as, to see this and, until he f couldn't find his way back. And we found him by an office, and in one hand, he had a police officer's hand, and the other hand, he had an ice cream cone and a huge smile on his face, you know. But he's probably worth chasing. Um, but for me, it was the longest 20 minutes of my life. And I think I learned something about the heart of God that day, you know, I wonder if God relates to time in that same way. Peter was asked, why is it taking so long for the second coming, the return of Jesus? And Peter's answer was, well, um, to God, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day because God desires no one to perish but for all to come to repentance. And his answer is really because God's still chasing. He's still chasing even this morning. That's why time exists right now. God has shown how far he will go to capture my pagan heart as far as the indignity and inhumanity of the cross itself. I learned a lot about God's heart that day. And we would continue to chase this child as he grew up. Basically, that's what it means to be a parent is, is, ch is chasing kids. And the chase has changed our lives. 
Actually, he's a grown man now, and just last week, um, he left us again, this time for a job in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, he took the family car, and he drove out of the driveway. And his mother and I stood in our empty garage and just cried. Um, because we love him. And, and as I think of it now, I, 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 I'm just picturing myself looking up that driveway, and I wonder who else beyond this driveway in my neighborhood needs that same love, you know? That's the question Jesus is asking us all to consider. Because the gospel of Jesus is not a set of instructions for getting close to God. The gospel of Jesus is, a, is the good news about what God has done to get close to you. The gospel is not about finding God. It's about God finding you. And I, for one, am so glad that he's come for my pagan heart, too, and for yours and for your neighbors. Let's pray. God, you've been called the hound of heaven. We're so grateful that you are, that you haven't allowed our constant wandering, our faithless hearts that cause us to turn away again and again to keep us from your love, but you have pursued us, and you will always pursue us until you have us secure in your grasp. And we thank you that you've sent your Holy Spirit to convince us of that, the reality of that love in our lives and also to commission us to carry that, life, that love into the lives of our neighbors. And so we ask your blessing on us, equip us, prepare us, motivate us, empower us for that task this week, we pray in Christ's name, amen.